1 Corinthians 11, 17-34 says this, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord that I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come, eat, come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together it will not be for judgment." About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the faithfulness of your servants who have recorded it for us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit's direction in providing uh, this text for us to live on and, and speak to our lives. We pray that as we examine it, as we look at it and apply it to our lives, God, that you would challenge us and change us and build us up and strengthen us in in your word. May we know better what you are trying to communicate to us about your church, about what your church looks like, about who your church is, and about how we are to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We thank you for this time in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. Uh, We're in in a series, obviously, on the book of 1 Corinthians, and as you know, Paul has, uh, you know, went to Corinth in a missionary, his second missionary journey. He is now three years after that writing a letter back to the church in Corinth and has gone through a number of things to uh, follow up on some issues that the Corinthians are dealing with and, and running into in their faith. And the first thing that he told them was that you are operating out of human wisdom rather than God's wisdom. And one of the chief characteristics of that is that uh, they were operating out of a place of selfishness or self-centeredness where they were thinking about what their view was and their perspective was uh, and, and pursuing their personal achievement and actualization. And so as he's gone through here, he is, 
hit that theme of selfishness over and over and over again uh, as he addresses various issues. First, in the context of wisdom. Next, in the context of a number of morality issues uh, stemming from uh, a man having relations with his, uh, with his mother-in-law to, uh, to prostitution, uh, men of the, of the Christian church engaging in the worship at the temples uh, in that way, and the eating of idol food and, and all these things have been centering around a person taking their, uh, their perspective of a, of a self-centered perspective, saying, well, I have this freedom in Christ uh, because he died for me, so I can basically do whatever I want as long as it's legal. Right, and so it's a very selfish perspective. It doesn't take into consideration that their freedom to do whatever they want to quote because of Christ's grace uh, is in the context of a community of people, and uh, and that that our relationships with one another matters. And so uh, so whether that be in morality or in the celebration through the church a service uh, that has to be taken in context, and so. Uh, so in the last last week we started a uh, a few chapters where Paul is focusing on worship within the church, and so last week we looked at head coverings and and how head coverings impact uh, the church and how they ought to operate and what the framework for them was in the original time that Corinthians were hearing them, uh, and we recognized that what was happening there was that people were acting out of freedom. And it's a freedom that they have because God has given it to them through Christ. But that freedom has a context of honor for relationships that have been established. And so our takeaway there was that in our relationships, there are things that we do that honor the others around us in a respectful manner. And that we ought not, you know, shy away from those things because we think they're tradition or whatever. If it's something that is honoring to your father or your mother or your sons or your daughters or, or your coworkers or your boss, if these are honoring things that you ought to do in our society, then go forth and do them. Show where honor is to be in that way. And so today we're moving on to another topic within the, the gathering of the saints, within the, the gathering of the church, and that is the Lord's Supper. Um, this passage has been interpreted in numerous ways for numerous uh, reasons and goals and, uh, and, uh, and motivations. And so what I want to start out doing uh, with this passage is talk about what this passage is not about. Okay? Usually we just talk about what the passage says. But oftentimes people have looked at this text and taken actually just a portion of it uh, out of its context and applied it to various doctrines or understandings of uh, what the Lord's Supper is and its purpose and intent. And so I want to talk about a few things that this passage is not about as we think about the Lord's Supper. Um, oftentimes the error in interpretation of this passage is taking just verses, uh, just verses 23, where Paul begins to explain what he has received from the Lord in the institution of the Lord's Supper, 23 through 32, uh, where Paul is then uh, saying that if you drink this supper in an unworthy manner, if you take of it in an unworthy manner, then judgment is going to come upon you. And so usually the focus is on, is on those verses, verses 23 to 32, in interpreting what are we supposed to do with the Lord's Supper and actually bringing down the weightiness of participating this in a worthy manner. And typically this is viewed from a very individualistic perspective, okay? My relationship with God rather than a corporate perspective, which I think we'll see throughout our time in this text, that we ought to take a more corporate understanding 
of the Lord's Supper than, uh, than we typically do. Not that the individual perspective is, isn't important, because it is. It's just not the focus of the text itself uh, today. So a, a few things that this passage is not about. First thing is this. This passage is not about earning or losing your salvation. This passage is not about earning your salvation somehow through taking of the Lord's Supper uh, or, or losing it. The passage, uh, you, can't, you can't earn your salvation with the Lord's Supper. You can't lose it by doing it wrongly. But if you are practicing it in an unworthy manner, as we'll see in the text, uh, if you're practicing it in an unworthy manner, it may reveal that you misunderstand actually what the gospel is, and, and that is a very serious matter. If you are, you know, engaging in the Lord's Supper in a way that, uh, that isn't worthy in the respect that we see today in the text, then you might be missing the whole picture of what Christ has done on the cross. And in that respect, you might be, be needing to take this a lot more seriously and understand what the ramifications are of this. But taking the Lord's Supper or not taking the Lord's Supper is not a matter of earning your salvation or losing your salvation. So oftentimes people look at verse, uh, verse 29 here in, uh, in our text and say, let a person, or 28 and 29 says, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And actually, a, a different translation of the Bible, the KJV, actually says that that is, uh, instead of judgment, drinks damnation upon himself. And so traditionally, what has come as a result of that translation and that personalized focus is that we have said that if you are taking the uh, the communion, the Lord's bread and juice, uh, uh, the, bread, the body and blood of Jesus, in an unworthy manner, then you are at risk of damnation. That your soul is actually on the table here if, if you aren't uh, taking it in a proper way, if you aren't somehow coming to it in a proper manner. And so typically you look at that and say, well, it looks like if I do this wrongly, if I, if I take this uh, this bread and take this cup wrongly, then, then I might, like, I might be uh, drinking damnation upon myself or drinking judgment upon myself such that eternally I will be separated from God somehow. We know that is, uh, is not true. We know that's not true because it's by faith in Christ alone that we have come to the Lord. We, can't, we cannot somehow add to our salvation. When we are saved, we are saved. There's no like increasing that salvation by every uh, Sunday that you come and take uh, of the communion. If it were that case, then like we're getting better and better because we're doing it every week where the Baptists, you know, they're doing it like once a month and some people are doing it quarterly. Like we're really adding to our, that's not what it's about, right? It's not about earning more salvation. Once you are saved, you are saved and it is a fullness. It is completed on the cross. It is a finished work, not one that you can add to somehow by taking the bread and the blood. The bread and the blood is simply a remembrance, a, a celebration of what Christ has already done on your behalf. It is not an earning more salvation, and it is not a losing of salvation if somehow you are doing it unworthily. The only way that, uh, that, uh, that your personal salvation is, is on the table here, so to speak, is that if you don't understand what is happening here and you're celebrating it out of just some cultural experience and you're misunderstanding the gospel, then that is a concern. 
And so if we're looking at this and, and someone doesn't quite understand what's going on here and they're taking it just out of, out of ignorance in some way, then yes, there is something at stake, but it's not about the Christian somehow losing their salvation as a result of like doing this improperly. But it may be about someone who claims to be a Christian not understanding the gospel and needing to understand it better so that they don't fall into uh, full judgment. And so this is not about earning your salvation. This is not about losing your salvation. It's not what the text proclaims to us. The second thing uh, is this, that this is not about getting pure in order to celebrate this, uh, this feast. Like, we, we don't, like, make sure we purify ourselves more in order to participate in this, okay? And so people look at verse uh, 27. Verse 27 says this, Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. People look at that word, uh, drinking this in an unworthy manner, and saying, well, like, you've got to be right with the Lord before you come and take communion. They actually interpret it and say, well, unworthy manner, that means that I need to be worthy of this bread and this juice, which flies against the whole purpose of the thing, of the remembrance, Right? The remembrance of the Lord's body and blood, body broken for us, blood poured out for us, centers around the fact that we are unworthy. There is no worthiness that we could achieve, no purity that we could gain on our own strength in order to somehow be worthy of this feast. The point of the feast itself is to celebrate the fact that we can celebrate it with the Lord because of what he has done. And so this is not about, uh, this is not about somehow getting pure in order to celebrate. Many times people will reference the passage in, uh, I think it's Matthew, where, uh, where the Lord says that if you're going to the altar to make a sacrifice and you have something against your brother, then you need to go and like, make sure that that's right before you come and celebrate at the altar. Now, while that's a great practice and, and we ought to do that, we ought to seek forgiveness in any circumstance, and especially you know, even when we're coming to this, we should make an effort to do that. I would say if you were like, right here, and your brother is on the other side of the state, like, I think you can go ahead and take communion, okay? I don't think there's, like, a restriction there. I think there is a forgiveness that maybe you need to have in your heart for him. You need to make sure that you have that for him, and and that's maybe good, Uh, but you're not going to somehow purify yourself enough in order to be, quote, worthy of this feast. The point of the feast is that you're not worthy, (laughs) and that Christ has made you worthy in it. And so, uh, so it's not about getting pure in order to celebrate the feast. It's not about earning or losing your salvation. It's not about getting pure to somehow celebrate this feast. Um, and it's not about uh, this, this very theological big term uh, of uh, transubstantiation. Okay? It's not about transubstantiation. A lot of times, really, any Lord's Supper passage is used uh, by some in the faith to say, well, this is actually... Christ's body, and this is actually his blood, somehow. The interesting thing is that uh, how, how you get to that understanding, which came to us in like the 10th to 13th century, this, this doctrine of the body, the bread actually, actually physically being the, bu- the body of Christ and being the blood of Jesus in some manner, is actually an application of Aristotle, Aristotle's philosophy to this Christian tradition. And so it's a blending of an Aristotle 
Aristotle's philosophy with Christian faith when this Lord's Supper actually had its origin in a Jewish Passover. So why are we applying Aristotle's philosophy of the nature of things to a Christian feast that had its roots in a Judeo faith? Doesn't make any sense, right? We're, we're taking Greek philosophy, applying it to Christian uh, practice uh, that came out of a Jewish faith. If anything, we should go back to the Jewish context of, of it rather than uh, applying some other philosophy to it. And that philosophy says this, that, um, that the, the elements or any, anything that has a nature to it, it has a particular nature, okay? And the appearance of that nature may have some accidents, is what they call it, okay? So it's accidental that, uh, that this bread and this juice appear as bread and juice, it's just an accident of it, but its true nature is, is actually the body and blood of Christ. So while in nature it is the body and blood of Christ, it's an accident that it is bread and juice. To me, that's overcomplicating the matter. Now, is the presence of the Lord with us in the feast? Yes, it is. Completely. Do we need to somehow go through some philosophical uh, judo <laughs> To, in order to explain that this is the body and this is the blood. No, Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood. But he also says that, uh, that he's doing this in, uh, in a manner that recognizes that this is truly fruit of the vine. In Matthew 26, 26 to 29, he says this, Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, so it sounds like the juice is the blood, the body is the bread, right? Okay. But then he goes on to say, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He's explicitly calling it, after he has said it is his blood, he is explicitly calling it the fruit of the vine. So to me, let's just take the simple matter and say, yeah, it's just juice. And it's got a symbol of, uh, of it being uh, his blood. Other examples through this, if we were to take that uh, type of philosophical application to Christ's words, it would put us in a box in a lot of ways. Because uh, Jesus says he's a vine, right? And so is he a vine all the time? No. Uh, just last chapter, actually, Paul says that Jesus was the rock, right? In Exodus, he, he was the rock. So is Jesus the rock, you know? So he's taking on all these forms. And, and so if we're going to apply it to this, we've got to apply it to all those things. And so all these rocks around here are holy rocks because, you know, Jesus is the rock, you know? So like you can't, it, logically, it doesn't work out for you in that respect. Um, Another verse that we look at that shows us that this isn't about transubstantiation is uh, Hebrews 10, verses 10 to 14, which says this, And by that we all will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Oftentimes what happens when we view these things, these elements as actually the body and actually the blood, is that it becomes a religious ceremony where we're actually sacrificing again his body. We were, we're, 
we are attaching meaning to our breaking of the bread and our pouring of the juice in some way as to crucify him over again. It's a sacrifice that was made in the past and it never will be made again. It was made once and for all. So we can't view this as somehow we're just like reenacting really the process. In fact, you look at the logic of it, Jesus gives this testimony before he actually offers himself. So his celebration of it was actually prior to his action in sacrificing himself. So there are a lot of problems with uh, this view that somehow it is this transubstantiation. Again, it is not a matter of uh, earning our salvation through taking of this body and this blood. It is a matter of placing our faith in Jesus. Jesus says, um, or Paul says to us in, in Romans ten nine that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus, has, Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So we don't have to go through religious rites in order to earn more salvation. Salvation is salvation once you have placed your faith in Jesus. It is yours fully and completely. You have been reconciled to the Father. You have access to the very throne room of God. It is not about transubstantiation. This text is not primarily about personal introspection. Not primarily about personal introspection. It is about that. That's definitely part of what we do in, uh, in the Lord's Supper and in communion is to examine ourselves and to be introspective of what is going on. But this text specifically, the context is not primarily personal introspection. If we just focus on verses 27 to 32 in considering this matter, we set ourselves up for a poor application of the entire text. What Paul is trying to get across to the Corinthians is more about unity in the church rather than personal reflection on on the sacrifice. Personal reflection on the sacrifice is definitely there. It's deeply rooted within it. But what Paul is addressing is that there is disunity among the church of God, which Christ gave his body for. And that is the point that we should hear most clearly. Um, So what is this passage about, right? It's about that. It's about the unity of the church, uh, a discerning of one another in the church. I don't know if you remember in uh, grade school or in high school or middle school, whatever, whatever case it is, maybe you've got a vivid picture from one of those grades uh, that you might remember. Uh, but walking into the cafeteria, you remember walking into the cafeteria and getting lunch at some point in your school career? I don't know, you could probably picture the cafeteria. To me, uh, my, I think it was my, uh, yeah, it was my elementary cafeteria. You would come in and it was a gym and normally throughout it'd be used for PE and all that. Uh, and we had tables that would fold out of the walls. Do you remember those tables that fold out of walls? Um, and then like trundle tables or whatever. And then they bring in some more tables throughout in, in the middle. And so I remember this, this picture of, of what my elementary uh, cafeteria looked like. You might picture yours in your brain. Uh, but inevitably, whatever that picture is for you of the cafeteria in school growing up, uh, you've experienced what we're seeing in this text. Because the fact is, when you go to a high school cafeteria or a junior high cafeteria, what do you see? People eating, of course, but, but how are they arranged? How are people arranged? Any, any thoughts? By friend groups, right? right? We've got a little, like, high school class system, right, of friend groups. We've got jocks and nerds and geeks and dorks, and we've got them all separate. We've got uh, more wealthy, less wealthy, you know, 
We've got economic separation. We've got all these sort of class system that is developed just sort of by the nature of things within our high schools and our, our schools. Whenever you go into, that's, a, that's a, a situation that every one of us has faced at some point in our lives growing up. We remember, you know, in my hometown, uh, the elementary schools where there were like seven or eight elementary schools, and then everybody at sixth grade from those elementary schools would come together in the same school. And so everyone was at that one middle school, one junior high, one high school for the rest of their time. So sixth grade ended up being a very important time for everybody as they're trying to figure out who's who of the middle school, you know? And so uh, as you walk in, it's very important who you're sitting with because this is going to determine, you know, where you're going, your trajectory and, and that sort of thing. And so, um, so that's sort of what we end up seeing in Corinth in this passage is that there is actually a class system that is developed within uh, the Corinthian church where, uh, where those who are more wealthy are sitting in one place, enjoying the meal in one way, and those who have nothing are sitting in another place, enjoying the meal in a whole different way, looking up toward these elites or the elites looking down toward those who have nothing within the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Now, do you think that that is what Christ died for? A class system within his church? No. And that is what this passage is about. Let's look at verse 17 to 22 again. Um, This is where we get the context of the whole of the passage. It says this, in the following instruction, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. I mean, to me, I'm like, it is great for us to come together and celebrate Jesus, right? He is saying that actually when you guys come together, it's for the worse. It is wrong. It is taking away from your faith when you're coming together. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine might be recognized. But when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. They're like, what? Like, yeah, that's the whole reason we came together was to have the Lord's Supper. And he's saying, no, like you got what you're celebrating is so foreign to what Jesus intended that it's not even, couldn't even be called the Lord's Supper. He says, verse 21, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. What? Do you you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. The context of Paul addressing the Lord's Supper is this, that there is become a separation between those who have much and those who have little. And as they come together as a church, they're coming together to celebrate Jesus as a church, those who have much are eating together their own ravishing meals of delicious foods that they have uh, been able to supply for themselves. And they're calling it the Lord's Supper. Well, in the same note, those who are poor are sitting on the other side of whatever home they are gathering in, and they have nothing. All that they're going to eat is maybe the bread and maybe the juice, and that's it. Whereas the rest are celebrating all that they could afford. And Paul is saying, that is not what I died for. That Jesus is saying, that is not what I died for. I did not die for a church that is somehow separated by their socioeconomic statuses. It's not what he celebrated. So, um, so we see that there's a class system that is developed in the church in Corinth. And Paul is saying, that is not the Lord's Supper. What we ought to see in a celebration like that is that everyone has the same meal. 
There isn't some distinction based on, uh, based on your economic status as to what meal you are having. Paul says later that, hey, don't you have houses to go eat? Like if you need to eat, you know, ravishly gorge yourself on food, which is really the terminology that he actually uses, gorging yourself on this food, then do it in your houses. But when you come together as my church, you, you have to be uh, in unity. You have to be as one. You are the body of Christ. You're celebrating this together. And so uh, come together in a very real manner. Celebrate with the same types of food together. Um, so we see the passage about this class system that is developed in the Corinthian church. Paul goes on to uh, share what the very purpose of the Lord's Supper is in reflection of what they are doing. He says, listen, this is what you're doing, and this is not the Lord's Supper. This is as far from it as possible. Let me remind you what the Lord's Supper is, and hopefully that will provide some context for you around like what you ought to be doing and thinking about in this celebration. Verses 23 to 26, again he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The purpose of this meal is to proclaim what Christ has done on the cross. And what Christ has done on the cross is made the playing field level. He has drawn everybody into reconciliation to the Father, those who have placed their faith in Jesus. It proclaims the Lord's death until he comes. It says, Jesus has died for all. There is no longer this separation of class or ethnic separation of later, actually the next passage of chapter 12, he is talking about the unity of the church, the body being one, uh, one, more, you know, one body made up of many members. And in that is included slave and free, Jew and Greek, rich and poor. All these things are included in that body. So Paul says, this is proclaiming the Lord's death for all in that respect. You can't somehow separate this uh, and celebrate it in some way that shows class system. It totally flies against the whole purpose of Jesus dying for us. He died for us that we might be unified as his bride. And so uh, Paul is uh, proclaiming to them that the purpose of the Lord's suffer, Supper is this, that Jesus gave himself for us that we might be saved and to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It is not about... Uh, some celebrating one way and some celebrating another. It's celebrating what Jesus has accomplished. And by separating ourselves and segregating ourselves in that way, we make it about something completely different. And we show to the world something completely different. If this meal of this gathering is to proclaim the Lord's death until they come, then people on the outside are going to look at that and say, well, the rich are eating there and the poor are eating there. Like, this is weird, you know? Or, well, actually, they'd say, well, this is normal, actually. They'd say, this looks like our normal pagan feast. You know, the rich are eating where they're eating and the poor are eating where they're eating. And that's how the pagan feast would go. And so they would say, there's nothing different about these Christians. They're just celebrating the way we celebrate, with just different elements. Paul's saying, the, the Lord's Supper is about what Christ has done to all of you. It has changed the playing field of things. And now in your celebration of it, you ought to celebrate in a way that demonstrates your unity, not your disunity. 
Paul says, I believe there are factions among you. I mean, I've lined out the factions already and shown that there's divisions among you. So it's not actually surprising to me that in this, even in this celebration of the Lord's Supper, that these divisions come out. He's saying this is just a symptom of an inward reality in your hearts. You don't understand the gospel. You are clinging to human wisdom and applying it to Christian uh, religious practice. So the purpose of the Lord's Supper is to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and show us uh, that there is a unity in the body of Christ. Um, He goes on in verses 27 to 32 and gives us the warning about celebrating in this manner. So the warning that he's giving in, in those verses is not about our personal reflection as much as it's about our corporate celebration. So verse 27 to 32 again says this, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, that is, in a manner that is disunifying to the church, will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Why is that? Because they have misunderstood what the gospel has done. Paul says, as I look at what you are doing, I can plainly see that you don't understand what Jesus has accomplished for you on the cross. That he has taken the rich and brought them to the cross, brought them low at the cross. That he's taken the poor and has exalted them at the cross. And that all now are on a level playing field where you are completely in unity with one another. And so if you're going to celebrate in this unworthy manner and still maintain your class system in this celebration, then you are going to drink, the, you're going to be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. The reason Jesus died is because that's what we deserved, was his crucifixion, his death on the cross. That's what our sin deserved. He took it on for us. And, and Paul is saying, if you don't understand the gospel and what is accomplished, then you are still standing in judgment of the reason that, that Jesus died for us. You have not realized what he has done there, not placed your faith in him in a real way. And so Paul says that you'll be guilty concerning the body and the blood. He says then, therefore, let a, a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So again, the call to us as we approach the Lord's Supper, and I think Sam has done a fabulous job in calling this out to us as we celebrate it, is that we ought to discern our body. We ought to be discerning of those around us and who we are and what the Lord is calling us to do and accomplish uh, and be discerning of that and realize that we are in unity, that we have a unified body here and that we celebrate this Lord's Supper as a body of Christ before the Lord. Um, And so that is true in our church specifically, and that is true in the body of believers as a whole, that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, We're in unity with our brothers and sisters in this this county, in this state, in this world. We're in unity with them in that way, declaring that the Lord has has brought salvation unto us. And so our celebration of it ought to be in that respect. Now, the fact is that it's not. There is definitely, we're still guilty of this, of having class system within our churches, with not really... Uh, engaging in unity in the way that we ought to engage. And so we have to hear this from that framework as a, as a rebuke to us in that Paul actually, uh, in a prophetic manner, ties some things that are happening in their church to their disobedience in this, uh, in this instance. He says in verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So again, people tend to apply this individualistically and say, well, if you're like, if you aren't pure and holy when you celebrate the Lord's Supper, then that's why you're going to get sick and ill and die. I mean, that's 
you know, a blanket application that doesn't make sense in, in the first place. But what Paul is saying is that he's looking at the Corinthian church and saying, you guys have people dying and illness and death. You know what? That, that's tied to your, the fact that you aren't celebrating this correctly. Now, it is not a uh, A plus B equals C sort of situation where every time someone celebrates the, uh, uh, the communion in a wrong way, they're immediately going to be judged with illness and death. That's not what Paul is saying, so he shouldn't apply the text that way. Paul, in a prophetic manner, is looking at the circumstance and saying, you've got this death and illness going on in your church. You know what? I'm not surprised because you guys aren't even celebrating Jesus' death and resurrection in a proper manner. And so he's saying that these things make sense to me, that this is present in your community, that, there is, that you aren't having victory over this because you aren't even celebrating his death in the proper way. You still have, you, you haven't changed. You're just like those around you. You still have this class system operating in your celebrations. Paul goes on to say, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Paul is saying the reason these things have been allowed among you, this illness and this death that is among you, is that you would realize the, uh, the gravity of the matter. That you would see that it is important that you understand the gospel. Your lives are fragile. Anything could happen at any moment. And this is a picture of that, that that the Lord is disciplining you so that you might see the importance of what you are doing and be changed. And so uh, Paul is urging them, uh, uh, speaking to them boldly and saying, listen, the reason these things are among you is because God is showing some judgment and discipline among you. And you need to turn from these ways and turn unto the cross of Jesus and allow unity to be on display in your celebration of the Lord's Supper. So Paul has shown us that the problem is that there is a class system within within Corinthian church. They are not unified in the way they're celebrating the Lord's Supper. And the purpose of the Lord's Supper was to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, proclaim that all have been saved and brought into a kingdom inheritance in Christ crucified. And so that's the purpose of the Lord's Supper. And he says, if you're doing it in an unworthy manner, then a lot is at stake. He says, I cannot confidently speak of your faith and your boldness because like, these judgments are coming on you because you don't understand the gospel in a very simple term, that it is by faith that you are saved, not through this celebration and especially not through the class system with which you are celebrating it. You ought to take, take note of this and be warned that if you continue in this, judgment is bound to come. And you're bound to be judged with the rest of the world. So Paul simply gives them a very simple solution to how they ought to celebrate this supper in verses 33 and 34. He says this, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. The verse uh, where it says wait for um, actually is probably better read as receive one another rather than wait for. So read it that way with me. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, receive one another. The Greek word there has an, an innumerable means of, uh, innumerable uh, methods of interpretation, innumerable meanings uh, with a wide variety, that is. Um, and within the context of 
of this interpretation that we're looking at a corporate celebration and not an individual uh, response to this, we actually ought to interpret it with the, the meaning that it can hold, which is receive one another. And in that, what Paul is declaring to them is that, uh, that you ought to receive each other when you come together. That is, when the rich come in to uh, come and celebrate and the poor come in to come and celebrate, you ought to receive each other, not separate from each other. Not segregate into your class systems and, and the rich eat over here and the poor eat over here while one gets drunk and another goes hungry. Paul is saying, receive one another. Be hospitable to each other. Do not separate as the world separates. Be unified as you ought to be unified under the grace of Jesus Christ. The solution Paul gives to them is simple, that we ought to receive one another. If anyone is hungry, he says, let him go home and uh, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. He says, listen, if, if you're like, I'll give you an out here. Like if you're like super hungry and you need to eat more before you come to celebrate the Lord's Supper with the rest of us, then just eat before you get here. You know, if you're able to do that, then, then do it before you get here and then come and celebrate in unity and declare the unity of the church in this way. But celebrating in this manner where you are separated by your class systems is not okay. Proclaim something completely contrary to the gospel. He says, receive one another. Anyone's hungry, let him go home and eat so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. This passage comes back to a phrase that we've said over and over again in this, uh, in this book that we've received a kingdom inheritance. And we ought to celebrate in that way. We ought to be lavish in our celebration of, of what we've received in Jesus in his kingdom. We ought to celebrate him gladly and with joyful hearts. But we ought to celebrate in the context of the fact that Christ was crucified for our celebration of the kingdom inheritance. So in that, our actions toward the, the Lord's Supper, as well as to one another as we celebrate it, ought to be with that sacrificial perspective. So rather than lavishly celebrating on one end of the house and having nothing on the other end, those who are able to lavishly celebrate ought to help those who can't. You are one body. You are one family. It ought to be one meal, not separate meals. One meal that everyone enjoys in the same manner. Let's do it as lavishly as we can, but let's do it in unity, not in disunity. And proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So who's this message for? It's uh, for us who celebrate the Lord's Supper. That we celebrate as the body. The body is one and has many members. And all the members of the body, though many, are, are one body. And so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free. And we're all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper as a church, we celebrate it together as a community, declaring what Christ has done on the cross. For those of us who do not celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper is a proclamation to you that there is hope in this world, that there is someone who has taken on your penalty in his body, that has poured out his blood for your sin, that you could be reconciled to God the Father. Let us celebrate the Lord's Supper in that manner, in a manner of unity, declaring what Christ has done for all of us. Let's pray.
God, we're so thankful for what Christ has done on the cross for us. We're thankful that we get to celebrate it on a regular basis together. God, we pray that um, in our church and in churches across our country, across our world, that we would not celebrate somehow separate from one another, but that we would celebrate in unity. God, there wouldn't be class distinctions in the church but they would see ourselves as one family, one body. For there's not one member of the body, but many members of one body. Lord, help us to discern the body, discern its needs, discern its joys, and celebrate it because you have conquered our circumstances and you've poured out your blessings for us. You have given us a kingdom inheritance in Christ crucified. May we proclaim his death until he comes. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.